welcome to The Third Wheel. Today we are going to be reading through... Holy voice crack. Today we are going to be reading through chapters 44 through the end of part 3, including interludes of The Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson. I'm Jesse, the person who's read all of these books before. I'm Tyler, the one who woke up about 30 minutes ago. And I'm Beyond, the one who is reading through this the first time. What a wide range of perspectives and experiences we all hold. Uh, here, let me try my intro again. I'm Tyler, the one that's been hard stuck in Elantris for about a month now, because, oh my god, wow. Spectacular. So, in our chapters today, we have a good chunk of Kaladin flashback chapters, and we also come to the general conclusion of Shalon's story in this book, although she still has one or two chapters left. Yeah, she's got some... It feels like her story in this book kind of all happens right at the end. Like, both at the end of the book and also at the end of her story. There's a lot of build-up, and then it kind of becomes, like, every one of the last, like, five Shalon chapters is massive stuff happening. Yeah, we'll get to it, as I like to say. Beyond, how did reading these chapters feel for you? Honestly, it was relatively easy. I saw the amount we were reading, and I was a little bit intimidated, because I only gave myself about 90 minutes to read it. But then I read it, and then I had like 20 minutes to spare. So, feeling pretty good. I know. I'm, I'm a true monster. That's 130 pages in 70 minutes. That's the power of having 10 hours of sleep like a fully functional human being. If you say so. So we are going to be starting with chapter 44 called The Weeping. It's another Kaladin flashback chapter. In this chapter we get some details about another facet of the weather on Roshar. In that even though seasons are only a few weeks long and come to go seemingly at random... There is one part of the year that comes every year, which is the weeping, which is a chunk of around two or three weeks where there are no high storms. And it's just constantly piddly rain all the time. Yeah, it's kind of like living in Portland. It's like, welcome to the Pacific Northwest. I knew you were going to say something along those lines. And just like the Pacific Northwest would, it makes Kaladin very depressed. Uh, yeah. Some. I mean, it almost makes you wonder... Is Kaladin depressed in general, or is it just that the Weepings have instilled depression in him? I mean, there are times of the year, other than the Weeping, where he's a very depressed boy. Um, We just know that he literally has less energy than usual when there aren't high storms happening. We can Mm. suss that out from what we know at this point. Hello, my name's Kaladin. I run off storms. That's my quirk. We are not doing Hiroaka. We're not doing Macadamia. I feed my life engines on the orange juice that is the high storm. I'm sorry. Uh, so Kaladin, Tien, and their mother are all hanging out on their roof. And Kaladin mourns the fact that their father has started spending some of the spheres that he co-opted from the old city lord. Yeah, because they've been asked to just sit there and eat dirt for their entire lives. Yeah. 
God, if only there wasn't somebody in charge making them eat dirt for their entire lives. That they could have solved the problem, and the reason he's being so petty now is because something they could have alleviated. Something tells me that killing the guy would not have brought in a better replacement. We already litigated this, and then Beona and I re-litigated it off podcast, and then I... Decided you were right between each other. I mean, yeah, pretty much. I also Great. Doubled. Sounds like I have a lot to contribute to this conversation. I anyway, also suffice it to wait, say I disagree. Wait, wait, wait. I was gonna say I double relitigated it with my father, who usually doesn't agree with me about these things, but he's read Brandon Sanderson books, and he agreed with Jesse that you totally shouldn't kill people. I mean, I'm I wouldn't have judged Kaladin's father for killing Roshan, but I'm also not going to judge him for not killing him. Anyways, I'm not doing this again. I'm not doing this again. That's fine. I mean, I'm like actually discussing this with you puts me in my dizzy animation. Fair enough. So Kaladin's mother essentially says that them spending the money is them pretending like they're giving into the pressure of Roshan's campaign of terror even though it literally is them giving into the pressure but I think we're just she's outsmarting right? herself yeah I, I definitely think she's next leveling herself or Kaladin I guess because Kaladin takes this at face value and he's like we're not losing we're winning it's probably but that it's like keeping face for the kids a cool mom she kind of is hashtag cool mom She's, like, hanging out on the roof with her kids because they're staring at the sky while it rains. Yeah. Cool mom, as we all know. Uh, So Calvin's father comes to see them all and tells them that there is a gathering happening in the town square. And we all know that only good stuff happens when this occurs. Uh, Guess what? Bad stuff's gonna happen. (laughs) So they go to the meeting at the town square. Uh, The first thing that Kaladin notices is that his childhood girlfriend is now engaged to Roshone. Don't worry about it. Not gross. Don't worry. Completely normal and fine. Yeah. I mean, in this world, yeah, I guess. So Roshone then introduces his cousin, Bright Lord Amaram, who is a high marshal in the army and is there to recruit kids for the army. I love child soldiers. Listen, but they're not going to be soldiers. They're just running messages. Well, that's what he says about Tien, but we'll see what happens with Tien. I think we already know what happens with Tien. We'll get to it. Though not in this section, technically. Oh, no, I meant like... Kaladin has talked about how he failed Tien and Tien is dead. Well, yeah, but we don't know the details until, like, nearly the end of the book. Fair enough. Um, So a few of the village boys volunteer, and then, when it's not enough, Rashon says, read from the list of the boys that you're going to be conscripting into the army, and surprise, one of them is Tien. I mean, is it a surprise he, like... Tells him to specifically pick Tien. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty transparent. He does not try to, like, pretend like it's not personal. No. I mean, 
yeah, what I'm saying is it's, like, specifically the opposite. He, like, placed Tien in a spot on the list where he would have to be called out in order to be picked. And then Kaladin attempts to be Katniss Everdeen, where he volunteers <laughs> his tribute. But it don't work like that. Supposedly. We'll pretend, like, the rules make sense for the sake of the story. I mean... This is the sound of me not relitigating whether Rashon should be dead right now. As I said, I wouldn't have disagreed with killing him. I'm just not going to judge him for not killing him. Anyways, so because Kaladin can't take Tien's place, he's just going to go in addition. And he swears to his parents that in four years I'll bring him home safely. Which, what a great thing to promise. Like, smash cut to Tien's grave. Pretty much. I mean, luckily, we've been hammered again and again and again. So, we know how this turns out. All Tien is missing is the anime mom haircut. (laughs) The anime mom destined to die. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. It was Tien's last day before retirement. Retiring to being a teenager. Retiring to collecting rocks for the rest of his life. No, he's gonna make cool, like, uh, what is it? Did he make a dragon? A horse. Yeah, he's a, uh... He's a carpenter's apprentice, but he spends all of his time making knickknacks. Chapter 45 is called Shadesmar. This is a big ol' Shalon chapter. This is the one that I thought I shouldn't be able to comment on because I don't know anything about what's going on. This one's gonna be... I'm stepping away for this chapter. Why don't you know about anything that's going on in this chapter? I'd rather you didn't step away. Because then I'm just talking. I know what it is. <laughs> so at the beginning of this chapter, uh, Shalon is doing some research on the first contact between the Alethi and the Parshendi. Uh, it's noted that the Parshendi speak of their terrible gods, which the Alethi think are referring to particularly large rate shells. Uh, the Parshendi are also confused by the Alethi Parshman asking, where is their music? Those are the uh, sort of important bits to know right now about the Parshendi. Um, Does that mean they're soulless? The Parshman? Yeah. Well, according to the Parshendi, the Parshman are missing something that the Parshendi have, and that's the difference between them. Were the Parshman created, or is that a spoiler? That's a spoiler. That's a spoiler. Yeah. All right. The details of what the Parsh race is are part of the story. More like Parsh of the story. So Shalon continues to not reluctantly enjoy being a scholar with her lesbian crush. No, don't look over there. Don't look at the lesbians. (laughs) Too late. Brandon Sanderson isn't allowed to write that. He might not be. I I hope this isn't an Orson Scott card situation. Well, I think that's another level. From everything I've consumed metatextually, I doubt it. He seems pretty liberal and open-minded. Well, as long as God isn't going to send him to the bad place for writing about girls kissing. Oh no. We should all go to the bad place if that's the case. Anyways, so Shalon realizes that 
she shouldn't be so pleased with herself all the time because she needs to start acting as if she's miserable to be a cover story for why she leaves. And then she immediately goes back to unabashed curiosity about the city of Urethiru. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff in this chapter that, like, the only reason that I don't want to comment about it specifically is because there's a bunch of stuff that, like, I know enough to be wrong in every guess that I would do, but wrong in a way where it would spoil Beyond, and I don't think it would actually be entertaining as, like, oh, speculation. I think it would be, like, oblique spoilers that I've picked up from places all coming together wrong in ways that just make me sound dumb. I mean, what's a podcast for except to sound dumb? I'll have you know I sound extremely intelligent all the time. I only sound intelligent at 1.3 speed. (laughs) I know that for a fact. Listening to us at a higher speed is much more palatable. Yeah, uh, pro tip about 50 episodes into the podcast. If you're not listening to our podcast at at least 1.2 speed, preferably 1.3, you're really not getting the full effect. Is it because we all talk low and slow? Or more like you're mitigating the full effect, which is the desirable outcome. Anyways. You're basically uh... listening with weighted training clothes on. (laughs) Master just this once. Let me listen at, listen at accelerated speeds. Anyways, so Shalon pump fakes Jasna and says that she needs to go looking in the library for a book that she knows exactly where it is because she wants some extra time down in the library. Wow. Hashtag got him. That library sounds really cool, by the way, just the way it's set up. Yeah. Shalon agrees that with library. you. The like reverse pyramid underground. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, and I particularly like the thought of, like, the study nooks cut into the walls that you can, like, see down into the library. It's pretty cool. It's like the coolest stacks ever. So while Shalon is down in the library, she runs into Kobzal, who's down there listening, who's down there looking for her, not listening for her, looking for her. Um, He's down there listening to a podcast at 1.3 speed. Listening to his extra special stalker ears where he's, you know, tracking her. Like an absolute giga-chad. Um, so Shalon and Kobzal resume ultra-flirting. And Shalon divulges to Kobzal that Yasna's field of study is Voidbringers. Kobzal explains to her that the Ardents... Uh, have literal belief in the Voidbringers that they came to Earth a hundred times in the Desolations, the first of which cast man from the Tranquilant Halls. And they believe this as literal. I mean, as far as we know, it might be... We only saw the last one. (laughs) True enough. And the last one doesn't even necessarily disagree with the way that this all goes. I don't really understand their religion. Whoa. Like, what like their, 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 their doctrines, their things. Like, obviously, dudes don't read, and women like sweet things. But how much of that is just the culture as opposed to the religious influence? And I know there's different types of interpretations of the religion, but what... How, how does it work? Is it, like, polytheistic? Do you have your patron fancy person? 
essentially Voronism is like the religion that worships the heralds. Uh-huh. Which I think were it would the be like, ten, ten original radiants. Yeah, I think it would be like if there was Christianity, but that like didn't care about the Christ part, it just cared about the saints. Because mm. like, I mean, as far as they know, the radiants were like literal physical people that existed. Well, they know for a fact like, right, that's it, what I'm saying. Is it's not? There's no level of like, oh, who know? Maybe, uh, maybe, but like, oh, are you talking about the heralds? Yeah, like, they know for everyone knows for a fact that the radiants were real. Most people at this point think the radiants were like magical Nazis, but the idea that the heralds is real is a bit more theological. But everyone treats the heralds as effectively good. Even though we know that at the end of the last desolation, they abandoned humanity rather than defeating the Voidbringers for good. I mean, is that... We don't know that. I mean, we know that from the prelude of this book. But, I mean, we don't know that their two options were continue fighting to win forever or give up. We just know that... Like, from their perspective, which is the only thing that we got, it was continue fighting forever to be eternally tortured. Like, their only existence was torture, and then sometimes you're not getting tortured because you're fighting. And then you just do that forever, and they chose instead to give up. Like, there was no talk of any second option, or any third option, which was maybe we fight long enough to win, and then we're done anyway. The details of this arrangement will be explained later. So Kobzal goes on to get very aggro about the fact that Yasna is investigating the Voidbringers. He feels that she is in researching the Voidbringers to prove that they weren't real, and thus disproving Voronism, which he gets very angry about. And by the end of this section, we know that he's not a real ardent, but rather an assassin. And this part still kind of confuses me. He really likes Voronism. Yeah. I, mean, I was I thinking he, he was just really in character. I guess that's how it could be interpreted, because he also remains very in character by being very solemn and offering to leave his fake monkdom to go be with her forever. I mean, besides the part where Shallan seems like a complete basket case, I don't see what's wrong with her. What do you mean? I mean, listen. Well, I'm talking about the fact that he's treating his fake monkhood very seriously. Right, but so, maybe that's so not fake. Just a good maybe actor. the plan is like, hey, let's go be Shallan's hubby forever. Only downsides about Shallan. She did definitely kill her dad. I mean, according to you guys, that's not a downside. Uh, listen, depends on what you get out of it. Uh, and she also definitely seems like she is having a little bit of cognitive dissonance. Oh, really? Can others see the shapes and things she's seeing in her drawings? She has not shown any of her drawings to other people yet. As far as we know so far, no. She's the only one that can see them. 
And okay. she can't even really see them. She, she can only see them in her, like, memory captures. She, like, dissociates while drawing, and then when she comes back, she's looking at her drawing that has them there. Um. So at this point, Shalon admits that she's going to miss the research more than she'd miss Kobzal. So I guess con number three of Kobzal going to be Shalon's hubby is that she isn't actually in love with him. She just sort of likes the attention. I mean... Which is fair. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm not, like, blaming her. Everyone likes attention. I mean, not everyone, but most people. The right kind of attention. It's a it's a very particular thing, human preferences. Anyways. Um, so because Shalon is leaving, Kobzal asks her to sketch him before she goes. Draw me like one of your French girls. Except he's not naked. As far as we know. So she does one sketch of him, and then he requests to do a sketch of them together. So she takes sort of a memory picture of them in a mirror, sort of like a selfie, and she describes sketching them as she worked furiously, blending the reality of Kobzal sitting and a fiction of herself. Something to keep track of. Understood. Shalon doesn't know who she is. I mean, I mean, she's also literally age-wise in that part where humans are figuring out who they are. That's fair. She I is mean, like 14. Yeah, like a 14, who's to say that you know definitely as a human being who you are, your ideals, your passions, your beliefs. I thought she was like 17. I was guessing around 15, 16. Oh wait, you're right. If Kaladin's like 19, I think Shalon's like 17. Okay. I was Anyways, guessing like I sophomore. Don't... I don't know high who, school. I don't know who the hell I am, so I can't judge anyone else. Yeah, and we're um, a quarter of a century. Wow, sounds like you're not judging people for perfectly acceptable choices that they're making. Anyways, um, Shalon begins considering the idea that instead of leaving herself, she could just send the Soulcaster back to her family and she herself stay in Carbranth. She thinks, could she really remain here, accepting Yasna's freely given tutelage after all that she'd done? Yes, Shalon thought. Yes, I could. She has no idea what she's doing at any time. Take the Soulcaster, put it in an envelope. Hope it makes it. And then just... Express mail, it's fine. Take the Soulcaster, put it in a bottle, cork the bottle, and then toss it in the ocean. And if you wish very hard to Storm Daddy, it will reach your family. <laughs> the ocean yeah. mail spren. You gotta burn a prayer sigil for that. Whoa. So while she's sketching herself in Cabzal, she has another episode where within her drawings, she sees a bunch of robed, hooded fig- or robed figures with iron symbols for heads standing all around her. That is terrifying and not okay. It's a pretty cool image. Um, so Shalon reasonably freaks out and tries to run back to her room. Uh. All, the wi- yeah, all the while she is taking memory pictures and sketching very quickly to herself as she goes and she sees these figure-headed dudes following her wherever she goes it's and coming very, closer and closer yeah, it's very uh 80s horror how you were gonna say very the spiral oh yeah 
that's for the uh, Magnus Archives fans in the back. So Shallan makes it all the way to her uh, chambers, and she draws one last sketch where she can see one of the figures reaching out towards her face, and she freaks reasonably. Uh, she then reaches to the side and feels the figure's hand without seeing it. Oof. Yeah, this is very old-school horror style. Still spooky, though. Still yeah, effective. I like I'm big spook. <laughs> yeah, I definitely remember, like, just this bit of the chapter is very propulsive and has stuck with me for a long time. Also because, at this moment, Shalon thinks to herself that she does have a weapon that she can use, but she promised that she wouldn't, but... All it takes is ten heartbeats to bring it forth. She began the process anyway. Ten heartbeats to bring forth the fruit of her sin, the proceeds of her most horrific act. She was interrupted midway through by a voice, uncanny yet distinct. What are you? What am I? She whispered. I'm terrified. This is true. Ah, there's so much going on. Reveal. Shalon has a shard blade. Ta-da! I think I pointed out something earlier that she said something that pretty heavily indicated she had a shard blade, but on my first time reading, this was definitely the scene where it was a reveal that she definitely had it, and that was definitely like a jaw-dropping moment for me the first time I read this book. Yeah, she definitely talks about it in the alleyway. Mm -hmm. You're like, how does how does she get it? Uh, it's the fruit of her most heinous crime she killed her not storm daddy her normal daddy and although the evidence of that is not in the section we just read yeah like i definitely would not have guessed that except for you two telling me that i mean she killed her dad she definitely killed her father so why is she Even bothering the... to go after the fabriel because her family is going to be killed by debt collectors if they don't find a new source of income. You're also definitely not supposed to be like, I just have this shard blade. Let me sell it to the highest bidder. Because people are going to start asking questions. That sounds like a good way to die. Yeah. Um, it's... We will learn the details of the situation in the next book, where Shalon's the main character. Yeah, begging your pardon for the spoiler about how she killed her dad but also i remember that at this point in my first read i was like oh she definitely killed her dad i mean if you're like paying attention to some of her flashbacks it's pretty apparent that she killed her dad and she describes this shard blade as being the fruit of her most horrific act so just putting those two together it would seem reasonable to say that she got this shard blade from killing her dad good for her I knew you'd support this. <laughs> we um, stan uh, patricide. <laughs> um, so when Shalon gives the truth that she is terrified, she falls into a different realm with a black sky and a strange small white sun that hung on the horizon too far away. And she essentially falls into a slimy ball pit that reaches all the way to the horizon welcome to magic hell also not okay very bad no thank <laughs> also, you also not hell uh, uh as far as i know it definitely is it seemed more like an in-between place not a hell it didn't seem as permanent enough to be a hell 
good catch. We get some notes in one of our interludes about the nature of this place, sort of obliquely. We'll get there. Um, so Shalon reaches for one of the spheres, and the sphere says, I've been as I have been for a long time, but I will change. And when Shalon comes back, when Shalon comes back to reality, the goblet she's touching melts into blood. There's like five different threads of things happening in this chapter. Yeah, this maybe is one of the like top three in this book that feels like you have to just come back and read it later to understand everything that's going on. Yeah, the one thing about where we leave off with Shalon in this section is that there's just like two more things left to explain with everything that went down here and with Kabzal before it actually makes sense. So we still have like a couple chapters right at the end of the book to make it all actually make sense, and I wish we just had that here. Yeah, but I, we need we need a Sander Lanch later. Yeah, when it happened that I was reading this book, I'm pretty sure that like from the start of this section that we're reading this week to the end of the book, I think I read over the course of like eighteen hours which included a shift of work. So it definitely didn't feel like that long to wait. But yeah, it was definitely like all kind of coming together at once. So a lot of not super explainable stuff happens to Shalon in these few chapters, but we'll get there. Um, so Shalon realizes that she hadn't actually taken the Soulcaster out of her safe pouch, but she somehow used it anyway to soulcast the goblet into blood to cover for the fact that there's now a pool of blood spreading all across her room. She takes a jug that she accidentally broke and cuts herself open. Perfectly logical reaction. Yeah, this this made me think of her as younger just because, like, you know what I'm going to do? This will cover all the suspicion because immediately... Like, I would just assume that's a suicide just from the way it is. But she doesn't think she's presenting it as a suicide. I mean, but... all she's really trying to do is sort of give an explanation for why there's a massive pool of blood in her room. She isn't really considering the optics of, you know, being the source of a giant pool of blood in her room. Sorry, I had a really bad menstrual cycle this time. Wow. I spilled all my blood out of my body. Can we not? Oh, I didn't mean it like that. I was going to make that comment before Beyond made theirs. Anyways, so like eight different traumatic things happened to Shalon in this chapter. And now she's going to be in the hospital, hospital, hospital. And only half of those things that happened to Shalon were her fault. Arguable. In regards right, to blood, um, isn't there a part when she says something about that being one of the significant things? Like, yeah, she it, describes blood as one of the ten essences. Yeah, is is that from a magical sense, a religious sense, or is it like literally in this world, blood has power? It let me be. read. Let me read the ten essences, could as found any. in the Ars Arcanum in the back of the book. Zephyr, Vapor, Spark, Lucrentia, Pulp, Blood, 
tallow, foil, talus, and sinew. Why does it have tallow and sinew? And why does it have zephyr and vapor? You'll understand. Never mind. Later. I'm I'm going into details, but Let's a lot see. of those things. Zephyr seem... and vapor aren't the same thing. Well, zephyr's when... a, a, the west wind, and vapor's water. When soul casting, the essence of zephyr coming from sapphires manifests in translucent gas or air, while the essence of vapor coming from smokestone, when soul casting, produces opaque gas, smoke, or fog. It's all in this little table in the back. Is it in the ebook as well? Yes. Yes. Okay. Maybe I'll read it. It's called the Ars Arcanum. You're free to look at it. Okay. It's it's actually not spoilery. It's kind of interesting. That okay. Yeah, I think There's if you read like the Oathbringer, uh, Ars Arcanum, mm-hmm. it might be spoilery. I don't know. I just yeah, know that, that would like, that would actually be the case. If you read the Ars Arcanum of the third book, it would have some world building details that are okay. Yeah, it's like how the um, Wheel of Time books all have glossaries, mm-hmm. and they're all non spoilery up to like two books after the one that it's in. Mm-hmm. But if you were they're, to look at the they're glossary, they're also for, completely like, useless. Well, yeah, I have the book that's actually useless or useful, the uh, Compendium, which is just like a massive glossary. But yeah, like if you if you read like the glossary entry for a character from book thirteen, it would have a bunch of spoilers for earlier books. And in the same way, at least in the uh, Wax and Wayne that I've been paying attention to, like later Ars Arcanum has spoilers for earlier books. But you're chill to check it out if you like. There's some interesting details. Okay. So, chapter 46 is called Child of Tanavast. So, in this chapter, Kaladin dreams that he was the storm. Uh, yeah, there's a bunch of crazy stuff in... This begins the trend of me highlighting stuff and just writing lore in all caps, which happened a few times between now and the end of the book. So, Kaladin swooshes through the whole world as the storm. He sees a bunch of cool places. And then he has a vision of Zesty Seth carrying out one of his assassination missions. And Zeth seems to see him. Don't worry about that. Then Kaladin hears a voice calling him the Child of Tanavast, the Child of Honor, and tells him that the Oath Pact has been shattered and that Odium reigns. I know something about this, because I read Mistborn's Secret History. What a madman. He's read books. (laughs) It turns out that reading them out of order gives you more information than you're necessarily supposed to have up to this point. Congratulations. Thanks. Uh, So Kaladin wakes up to all of his bridgemen literally pinning him to the ground saying that while he was dreaming, he tried to go out into the storm, which sounds a lot like Dalinar. Or good Dalinar, man. He just needs to harvest all that storm. Mmm, delicious storm. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Well, because it says again that one of the spheres gives up on existing again. Like, Kaladin has a headache, and he takes a deep breath, and then one of the spheres in the room just goes out and he's like i feel better this is fine he doesn't even think about it 
Also, my subtitle for this chapter is Look How Woke These Characters Are. <laughs> there's a bunch of it in this chapter. Because uh, the first instance, Rock is shaving all of the bridgemen. And Kaladin requests him to shave his beard clean off. And don't put it in a strange pattern like yours. And Rock says, you're a lowlander, my good friend. It is not right for you to wear humaka aban. So Rock says, no appropriation. Good for Rock. And we got more in this chapter. He says, I would have to thump you soundly if you tried this thing. Rock is good. Rock is a good guy. He's the third son. He's good. I love Rock. Uh, I love rock. <laughs> that rock right there. I understand I that mean, reference. There's a lot of rocks to be liked. <laughs> so while everyone is gathering around shaving, um, Sigzil sort of interrogates Kaladin about his hatred of light eyes. And then we get some flashbacks about it. I mean, not in this particular Not chapter. in this one, immediately. It's more about the discussion of... Um, the the power imbalances and it made me think of the statement you can't I, I i'm gonna m- mess it up but it's like you can't destroy the master's house using the master's tools sort of thing where it's some of them were talking about just immediately flipping the dynamic of then the dark eyes being in power and then others were like well it really wouldn't do that much and it just continues onwards about making change Kaladin says, I'm happy to punish them, the Light Eyes, but I have no desire to take their place, nor do I wish to join them. But then Moash says, I'd join them in a heartbeat. If I were in charge, things would change. The Light Eyes would work the mines in the fields. They would run bridges and die by Prescendi arrows. And Kaladin is just like, that's not going to happen, but I don't blame you. So that's sort of their mindset. So then... Sigzil gives uh, Kaladin and Moash sort of a story of another country called Babatharnam, where the people in charge are the ones who are oldest, and thus there is a dynasty of people that executes everyone else when they reach a certain age, ensuring that their line is always the oldest. Nice. Um... So Sigzil essentially says that no matter where you go, you will find some who abuse their power. But then Kaladin says, I changed the world, Sigzil. Oh wait, no, this is Moash that says it, not Kaladin. I changed the world, Sigzil, and I mean to. And how are you going to do that, Kaladin asked. I came to this war to get myself a shard blade, and I still mean to do it somehow. So, something to keep track of for what Moash wants. He wants to, like, constant revolution... Marks, marks, marks. I want a shard blade. Moash. Noted doer of nothing wrong. Moash. Rise up, Moash. We'll get to it. Um, and then they so, make Sigzil unhappy and sh- make him go away on yeah. accident. Rock makes Sigzil unhappy by outing him as something called a world singer. And Sigzil's like... Don't call me that, and leaves. Don't out me. That's rude. Is that another instance of these woke characters? Uh, no. It's not not woke to out somebody. I'm saying Sigzel. Never mind. We'll get more woke characters later in this chapter. Don't look at world singers. Don't shake world singers' hands. (laughs) 
Although we get a section of these characters being ultra not woke when they are given a Parshman slave to be an addition to their bridge crew. And all of the bridgemen proceed to be ultra racist to this Parshman. Until Cal's like, no, he's one of us now. Interestingly, Cal says, no, he's one of us now. But also down in the caverns when they're training with a spear, he says that he has no intention of putting a spear in Shen's hands. Yeah. So, words and actions, Kaladin. Words and actions. They also do definitely put themselves in a, like, a place where Shen would be like, time to kill them. But that might be a spoiler for the next part of the book. Why are Parshmen especially powerful in the crevices? Uh, no. Are they? I don't know that they are. I don't know, just because the, their, their location of their training to be spearmen is in, like, the weird rocky crevice depths, right? No, you'll yeah. understand what I'm talking about when you're older. Oh, okay. but But Shen isn't any more powerful down there. He's still just a parchman who is constantly looking at the ground. It's happening. The cat. You can hear her. Uh... Yeah, you could say that. So Scar immediately proves Sigzil's point by saying that we can have Shen run at the front and he'll take an arrow for one of us. Perfect. So Kaladin takes a walk through Sedeus' war camp to have himself a good think. So Kaladin has a bit of a conversation with Sil about whether or not she believes in the Almighty, which is sort of a complicated thing for her. She feels like she knows something that she can't remember. And Kaladin asks her if she's ever heard of something called Odium, which really pisses her off. Yeah. Whoa, wait, I'm sorry. Did you say Sill knows something but can't remember it? That doesn't sound like the Sill I know. Sort of her deal. Yeah. So while Sill is... Off having a hissy fit. Uh, Literally. Kaladin, yeah. Kaladin witnesses one of Sedeus's soldiers assaulting a prostitute, but then three officers of Dalinar's war camp come out of the crowd to stop him. Including one that sounds like we've seen him before. Yeah, it's Adolin, because he has a shard blade. Yeah. And then we get exhibit two of these woke characters when Adolin tells the prostitute, I suggest you insist on being paid first from now on. So Adolin says, support sex workers. Good for him. Make life safer for them. Adolin addresses Kaladin as bridge boy. Oops. Which instantly makes Kaladin hate him, regardless of anything else he's just saw him do. That's okay. I'm cutting out our portion of that. Tyler was saying that our man Adolin was mansplaining. What to Kaladin? No, or to the prostitute. To the prostitute. Like, it's probably really easy for the guy that's second in command of the army of the guy who is like, in theory, maybe second in command of the kingdom, to tell this woman who is like trying to make a living off of light-eyed officers. Like, 
here's how you take back power in the relationship. Just do this, dummy. And it's like... That's fair yeah, enough. Yeah, dog. Probably yeah. as exactly as easy as just do this, forehead. That's fair enough. True. And then Adolin then goes on to manspread all over Kaladin. Adolin's a lib. Oh no, he is, though. So... Adolin tosses Kaladin a sphere to give a message, and Kaladin's like, cool, I'll definitely do that. And he just pockets the sphere and doesn't do anything. Syl says, you took his sphere, and then Kaladin says, earned by the sweat of the dark eyes he exploits. Kaladin says, seize the means of production. Yeah, that wasn't very honorable of him to do, but also... It's also blood money, so... Yeah. But it's also highly petty. Like, he's not really trying to make a point. He just doesn't like that Adolin called him bridge boy. He is both a bridge and a boy, so I'm not really sure what the problem is. How is he a bridge? Explain to me. Uh, you'll understand when you're older. You know I think what? we're I think all might... older than you, right? No. Oh, no, Jesse's the baby. We've talked about Jesse's this. Jesse's the tallest baby in the world. Well, well. <laughs> I think killing people is mostly wrong. <laughs> I'm really glad that you made the joke because I was still trying to figure out how to phrase it in my head, but you saved me. What a little baby. <laughs> where, where I figured out how to phrase a joke about murder being wrong faster than Tyler. Where that's what you sound like right now. Oh, that well, means Tyler's the middle child. That explains so much, though. Oh, the middle baby. Sorry, we're, we're just off track. But yeah, um, does could that sphere also feed Cal pretty good? If, it, if it's infused. Okay. Oh, that's a good question. I don't know that we touched on it. Do better spheres hold better stormlight? More delicious well, stormlight? The better spheres are better in the fact that they hold bigger gems. Okay. Which, so that's what makes the denominations different, is that they have bigger gems inside of them, which would, you would think, mean more light. Does that also mean that the larger ones are, like, physically larger spheres? I think the spheres are all the same size, it's just that the chip of gem inside them are different sizes. So just to clarify, you could not end up with a sphere that's like the size of a kickball? Not as far as I know. I'm the king of the spheres! I'm the king of the spheres. They have chips, marks, and bromes. I don't know if brome is a real word. Bro! Bro! Broom. Browum. Brom. Anyways, uh, chapter 47 is called Storm Blessings. It's another Kaladin flashback. So Tyler was talking to me earlier today about this sort of frustrating him in that this is the next Kaladin flashback after seeing him and Tien being drafted into the army. But at this point in the story, it says Kaladin turned looking eastward towards the home to which he could never return. He decided months ago his enlistment would be up in a few weeks, but he would he would sign on again. He couldn't face his parents after having broken his promise to protect Tien. So reading this chapter, it would be reasonable to think we're just going to skip whatever happened to Tien and just assume, you know, war happens. 
That so wow, I really didn't explain it well. I might cut it out if I don't do it good a second time, but that's super not what I was even complaining about. I was talking about like the amount of things that we are supposed to take on faith as these events in the past that you don't get to see until later in the book affected and changed Kaladin's character. Some of them happening in between the first time that you see him, when he's Kaladin Stormblessed, God King of this squad in Amram's army, and Kaladin double-branded the slave. And like, so these things affected him, but we don't get to see them. We just have to see him, like, like, we don't get to see the character development happen. We just see pre-development, post-development, and then have to take it on faith for the next 600 pages. That, no guys, I promise, there really was good character development off-screen. I'm just going to show you later. Again, I totally agree with what you said. I don't remember if it was last episode or the one before. That, like, you cannot start these books off with just a hundred straight pages of flashback, it just wouldn't work, it wouldn't be good. I'm not the guy getting on my soapbox saying, like, I could write it better than Brandon Sanderson. I just also, like, I remember that specifically. This was about the time in the book that it stopped being a problem for me. Uh, I think this was, like, the last time, and after this I felt like I had enough information that I was good with it. Uh, I think... I think a healthier way to think about it is that the really pivotal moment isn't him failing to protect Tien. The really pivotal moment is when Amaram kills his squad mates and brands him as a slave. Right, that's what and, I'm saying. But, is like... but, that, but that moment has been treated as a mystery rather than a given because Calvin has only spoken in vague terms about saying that the mistake he made was who he didn't kill, not who he did kill. Like, he's been dropping all these sort of hints. Like, the better way to think about it isn't that he's asking you to take it for granted, but rather it's instead, like you know that you don't know the whole picture and there's a reason why you don't know the whole picture and it's a mystery to be solved rather than something he's asking you to take for granted. Right. I guess that's the thing for me is it's not like... It doesn't feel to me like a mystery to be solved and when you look back at this, it doesn't feel like one of those reveals in stories where like... um, not going to spoil the end of this book, but Jesse, you and I talked this morning off recording about uh, both Shallan's Shardblade and something else, and how in retrospect, that's the kind of reveal where you can see every time it was built up, whereas in this, it doesn't feel like you... Up to this point, it doesn't feel like information that's like, oh man, I picked up on the subtle hint. It just feels like a binary switch of... I have either told you the event or I haven't, and going back and reading it, I don't feel like every time that I read about Kaladin being depressed and explaining it with, it's the guy that I didn't kill, would, like, make that scene better or more interesting. So, I, again, I don't think it's necessarily bad, because it sounds like you have the opposite take. I think it's maybe just me specifically, like, 
I mean, no. I think it's just that it didn't land for you. Yeah. Which I, is totally reasonable. As I said, these Kaladin flashbacks are my least favorite part of the book. Yeah. And so. I actually read somebody, uh, I don't remember where it was, but somebody online was describing uh, Way of Kings to somebody else and was saying that the whole first book is supposed to be um, taking it on faith. Like you kind of described that very first section we read and like, hey, this book's pretty good. So if this whole first book is supposed to be quote unquote the bad one, then like I'm super hyped. I am not saying that these are bad. It just sounds like this one specific thing didn't work for me. Well, I prefer going for something and maybe missing rather than meandering for seven books. Woof. Sounds like somebody's been listening to the audiobook for Path of Daggers. I have. It's not great. That sounds suffering. I'm sorry. What I would say about these whole flashbacks is I really wish they were chunked together more because, at least for myself, it feels like this is a really juicy part of a flashback, and yet it's like, really? Now, close to the end of the book, we're getting this? What if you didn't have it in a flashback and instead you originally started with this and then you had a time skip to current? Maybe that's just how I like it, where I prefer to have things happen and then suddenly a time skip and now here's what happened. But I don't know. For me, flashbacks, we get it. He's traumatized. Now we finally know the source of his big trauma. I mean, would you have kept reading after 150 pages of Hearthstone politics? Yeah, I think that's the thing is like the flashbacks don't work as a continuous block. But I do see part of what Beyond's getting at. Like, some of the flashbacks totally work as this is a thing that we are exploring in the current timeline. Time to go back in a flashback and see about it earlier. Yeah, that's best case scenario with the flashbacks. Most of the time it doesn't quite hit that note. Yeah, a lot of the time it's like, wait, why were the two chapters about Kaladin being in Amaram's army split up? It, it like, sometimes it almost feels like Branderson just has, like, an aversion to putting the flashback chapters next to each other. Because if you hate them, then you're reading multiple chapters that you hate in a row. Just let them be next to each other. It, it, it's more smooth, in my opinion. This, having them in this way requires you to be constantly immersed. And so if you're somebody who doesn't read fast and you're maybe reading like one chapter a week or more or I don't know, capitalism, we're all working to death anyways, whenever you can sneak it in, it seems like it's relying a whole lot on the person being so invested that they can put together all the pieces themselves. And it doesn't seem fun to me. I mean, maybe a couple flashbacks, fine. But when it feels like a large chunk of your story is invested in flashbacks, that's a lot to put on the reading experience. And for myself, I did not find that particularly enjoyable. They're well-written, and things do happen, and things are moving. I just think the construction doesn't necessarily make it the best it could be. And again, I'm not saying I could write it better. It's just how I like things to flow. This feels very disjointed. Right, but I think what Jesse's saying is... Well, I feel like that's totally fair. I feel like that pretty well encapsulates why I don't love these chapters. Yeah, I, I think that there's a middle ground to be found between 
every flashback chapter in a chunk and what we currently have where they're spread out seemingly for the purpose of not putting them together at all. I would not like to have to do a treasure hunt for my reading experience. We have also, I don't know if it was on air or not, but you and I have also talked about how you specifically beyond, like, don't like stories to be non-linear in any way whatsoever. Well, not necessarily. I read a lot of fan fiction that's non-linear. It, I feel like for things to be non-linear, you have to establish enough of a base that you are invested to follow the twists and turns. Well, you've been reading for 800 pages. We're not that far. We're only like 700 pages at most. My my book says 800 out of 1,200. Oh, well, then it's counting differently. Yeah. Anyways, this particular chapter. <laughs> it's a very emotionally driven chapter. It's very action paced. It feels a bit like a movie where you can just see things happening and going, especially once he gets into the intense tragedy emotions, feeling his need to fight and destroy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this is a retelling of that first chapter of Kaladin recruiting a new fresh-faced recruit in Amaram's army to protect him. And in that first chapter, we see Kaladin as Kaladin Stormblessed. But from Kaladin's perspective, we see that he has been riddled with these doubts from the start and has never just been chatted in. He's Kaladin Stormstressed. He is Kaladin Stormstressed. I like that. So, whereas in the first chapter, we sort of cut off in the middle, we see that. So, we get the full action scene that is this battle. And we get a bit of action with Kaladin protecting Sen. I think we might have seen this in the first chapter. We did, where where he steps in front of that blow and does his cool, cool moves. His kata. His kata. (laughs) So we get reinforced that even though Kaladin was mistreated by Rashon, uh, at this point in his story, he still sees Amaram as one of the good ones, like Dalinar or Sadeus. Yeah. That'll change soon, but right now he thinks of Amaram as like an honorable light eyes. It changes like two chapters from now. So while looking around, they see an enemy shardbearer smash Amaram's battle lines, and Kaladin watches the Shardbearer just run sent over with his horse and kill his best friend on a whim. Yeah. Um, so this makes Kaladin real mad, and he runs to go fight the Shardbearer on his own. In this fight, he notes that this creature, the Shardbearer, wasn't a god, it was everything the most petty of Light Eyes represented, the ability to kill people like Kaladin with impunity. I mean... Fair. It's... Why exactly was the Shardbearer attacking them? Good question. Because aren't aren't they supposed to be fighting the Pershendi? Good question. So so what's with this light-eyed shard bearer just casually destroying another light-eyes battle formation? Good question. Uh, we get told that a lot of the high princes that aren't on the Shattered Plains have petty border disputes, but it's said that normally you don't see shard bearers there. That seems like so. a big power move to be like, hey, guess what? 
stay in your lane. This is my border. I'll just say that in the next flashback chapter, Amaram mentions something about why was he here? The ghost bloods are getting aggressive. Uh, I didn't highlight it, but now that she said those words out loud, I remember. <laughs> wow. Mysteries. So Calvin does some matrix moves that the shard bear isn't expecting and manages to shove a spear right through the shard bearer's visor slit. And he has defeated a shard bearer. The definition of hashtag got him. <laughs> he truly has hashtag gotten him. So because he has killed a shard bearer, it's the shards now belong to Kaladin. He could be a light eyes. But the thought of touching that blade sickened him. It represented everything he'd come to hate about the Light Eyes. And it had just slaughtered men he loved dearly. It's yours, Korob. I give it to you. So this is sort of another reveal of what Kaladin sees as his greatest hits of his mistakes. Kaladin, memories to cry by. Volume 26. <laughs> Chapter 47. Page 300. So chapter 48 is called Strawberry. So Shalon is in the hospital. Happens and... to the best of us. Hey, Bion and I are about to be in the hospital. But not for... Thanks for suiciding yourself, child. I'm sorry I was such a horrible teacher. I pressured you to suicide. Side note, they work at a hospital. Yeah. Not like they're planning on being hospitalized. Anyways. I'm going to schedule Shalon. my coronavirus for tomorrow. Uh, Shalon says that she hadn't thought far enough ahead to realize how much like a suicide attempt it might seem like. Hmm. For real? Oh, Shalon. Like you just thought it looked like you tripped on a glass jug and cut yourself up? Maybe. Maybe. Although. That's a lot of blood to just trip. I um, I made the con- I said I tripped and spilled all my blood. So Shalon figures that this apparent suicide attempt is a good enough cover story as any for her to leave and come home. Uh, she has a bit of a chit chat with King Teravangian, who waxes philosophical about the value of his ho- about the value of his hospitals saying that light eyes and dark eyes alike, nobody turned away. Not beggar, not whore, not sailor from afar. It's all paid for by the Palinaeum. So That is a really good concept. Universal healthcare, let's do it. Teravangian says Medicare for all. Teravangian always knows what's right. The only question is how well it's enforced and um, like triaging and prioritizing and the actual treatment people get. But free healthcare is a very good step. This hospital doesn't seem super crowded or dingy, and Shalon seems to be getting some pretty good healthcare. She's also a light eyes, though, so... True enough. But yeah, it seems really nice. And seeing as he thinks that she tried to commit suicide, he says, This world is a tempest sometimes, but remember, the sun always rises again. What a nice guy, that Taravangian. He seems like a nice guy. As soon as Teravangian says that it's alright for Shalon to have visitors, Yasna walks in. So she's essentially been waiting outside her room for like three days, waiting for her to be allowed to come in and visit. Yasna cares. Staring she... hatefully at the door. <laughs> Yasna's good. She is. Although, she mad later. Oh, she's very mad, but I mean, it's, it's justified. 
Um, so Yasna gives Shalon a blank book to remember her by before she leaves. Get it? It's like a metaphor or something. No, but it's a really nice explanation, and it delves into Faith and their, their personal relationships with it. I thought it was a nice, nice scene. It she delves says into that being gay. <laughs> you might say that. Uh, she says that they're guided by the belief that there are always more answers to be found, that and the book cannot be filled. There's always something to learn. So she hopes that Shalon carries that with her. And then Kovzal shows up with bread and jam. Shows up with some poison. The most shameful jam. Yeah. <laughs> this jam is a sin. So Kovzal says that today he's brought some very special jam. It's made of strawberries. Yasna says that they're exceedingly rare, and that, like most plants from Shinovar, it can't grow in other places. I talked about this. <laughs> so, we get a very confusing, like, sequence of events that involves Yasna eating some jam, the jam being bad and vinegary, then everyone having some bread... And then only Shalon and Kabzal being affected by the poison that is apparently in the bread, while Kabzal has been trying to make Shalon eat this jam. It's. I had a couple questions about this. One, is he buying his jam with the antidote already mixed in, and he's assuming that the jam person has the magical antidote always? Is he opening these jams and shoving an antidote and, like, whisking it furiously and then making them look presentable again? It's explained really, really clearly later. Okay. Because how could you not know that your jam is tainted if you yourself are mixing in the antidote? Oh, he knows. You, like, you literally cannot conceptualize how clearly they explain it later. later. Uh, like, as I said, where we leave this storyline is a little frustrating because this single chapter makes no sense how it actually plays out until they explain it in full near the end of the book. Like, but somebody sits down and is like, here's exactly what happened in that last Shalon chapter. Yeah, this chapter is supposed to be incredibly hard to parse exactly what is happening and why until it's explained later, which is a bit unfortunate. Mm, um, I love stuff like this. It's my favorite. Again, not a problem if you just read the entire like last third of this book in 18 hours i mean for me it'd be fine because i could just read this book but again for like somebody who reads slowly or only has small chunks of time they can read each part i'd be so frustrated i mean if you're sort of casually reading it might not even seem confusing it's like oh shalong got poisoned i wonder how that happened and you'll just Wait to see how it happened later. I was just furious that something as wonderful as strawberry jam could be tainted in this way. Well, and the strawberry bread. jam was the cure. If you think Although about it, the strawberry jam didn't work. wasn't tainted. I mean, for a jam to turn into vinegar, that's a pretty bad jam. You'll understand mm. when you're older. And the bread. This chapter literally needs a whole other chapter explaining this chapter. It's unfortunate. So, both Cobzal and Shalon have been poisoned. And Yasna says that she needs a garnet to soul cast the poison out of Shalon's blood. 
uh, Shallan realizes that she has a garnet in her safe pouch along with the soulcaster that she stole from Yasna. She pulls it out of her safe pouch and faints. She busted. What kind of an assassin isn't immune to his own poison? You'll understand a, when you're older. What a loser. I, as I said, this chapter requires an entire other chapter to explain this chapter. Like, I, I can't describe to you how much someone sits down and says, okay, everything from the moment that Kabzal walked in, we're gonna explain it right now. And, like, it's a really solid explanation. It's really clear and easy to follow. It just doesn't happen until later. Brandon Sanderson, what if I told you this thing, and then ages from now I finally explain it? That's literally his MO. This is fine. You'll love it. Buy every one of my books. I mean, a lot of people do love it. I mean, also... I'm kind of one of them. In retrospect, it makes perfect sense. It just... yeah. Needs to be explained later. It just needs to be explained later. So, chapter 49 is called To Care. I want to care. And yet, here we are. I'm not sure how to take that. Um, so, we start this chapter with Bridge 4 down in the crevasse, and Teft is asking a bunch of incredibly leading questions to Kaladin. Do you ever how do you feel? feel? Like, <laughs> do you ever feel <laughs> like you're consuming Stormlight and using them to lash yourself to things, like changing the gravity around yourself, or for yourself specifically? And Kaladin's like, huh? And Tef's like, nothing. Tef's like, I ask that question to everybody. Somehow Kaladin doesn't get it. Um, I got ahead of myself and thought that this was the chapter where, like, Tef was going to reveal Kaladin's powers to him. So I got sort of excited when we got this line that said, Kaladin lived when everyone else died. Was that the work of some spren from Damnation toying with him like a windspren, but infinitely more nefarious? But like, if he were to learn about his powers right now, it would be a sudden concrete explanation for why he seems to survive situations where everyone else dies. And it would recontextualize his curse. Yeah, we don't get that explanation here. This chapter is just like, I am going to train Bridge 4. I am now training Bridge 4. End of chapter gonna train him real good do a big Um, i'm gonna run a train on him (laughs) lay some train whoa that's a that's a different thing um so kaladin gives a big old badass drill sergeant speech to his men and tricks teft into revealing that he has experience as a soldier (laughs) haha i trolled you trolled and so Teft becomes Kaladin's de facto lieutenant in training all the bridgemen. Yeah. Um, Kaladin then puts the bridgemen who can't fight to work collecting things from the chasm so that they aren't taken off chasm duty, which, you know, is reasonable. I'm glad that Brandon Sanderson thinks about these details. Um... And they use Sill as an advantage so that the work that four men can do the work of an entire bridge crew while the rest of them are training this with the spear. While you were training the spear, I was looting corpses. I was looting Parshendi corpses. So that's most of that chapter. It's not a big one. No. Chapter 50 is called Backbreaker Powder. Uh, this is the last Shalon chapter for a while. 
Also not a big chapter by page count. No. Uh, so, Shalon wakes up and remembers that she gave the Soulcaster back to Yasna and says that the next half hour was the most miserable in Shalon's life, which I feel you. Listen, everybody makes mistakes. So Yasna comes in to talk to Shalon, and she is rightfully incredibly pissed. Um, Shalon explains that her father is dead, and that she stole the Soulcaster to provide for her family, but she doesn't provide the full context of why that was her decision. And uh, the explanation we get for what happened in the last chapter here is that Yasna says, The bread was poisoned, very lethal, dusted over the bread to look like flour. I suspect the bread was similarly treated every time he visited. His goal was to get me to eat a piece, but I ate a lot of that bread. The jam had the antidote. Um, so that's Yasna's explanation right now. But if you read the previous chapter closely, that doesn't quite add up. So we'll get not. more of that. Also, before um, Shalon starts to explain, uh, Yasna seems that she stole it for some other of the religious f- sections, factors. Yeah, which groupings. is what makes her so mad. Although Shalon's alternative explanation doesn't really appease her at all. She needs to hit harder on the sob story. And at first when I read Shalon saying, like, my father's dead and, like, trying to talk to Yasna, I was like, oh, thank God, we're not going to leave this on a miscommunication. But then Shalon thinks, looking at Yasna, seeing the cold rage hidden behind her calm exterior, frightened Shalon enough that her questions about the symbol heads and the strange place she'd visited died on her lips. I'm like, God damn it, we are ending on a miscommunication. Love it. It's like my pet peeve. Well, hope you... Don't read Elantris. Yeah, Elantris is straight bad, I would say. So at the end of this chapter is where we leave Shalon. She says, or she thinks, she'd lost it all. No Fabriel to protect her family. No wardship to continue her studies. No Cobzal. She'd never actually had him in the first place. Her tears dampened the sheets as the sunlight outside faded, then vanished. Nobody came to check on her. Nobody cared. Nobody cares, Shalon. Also, Yasna's gonna make it so she can't ever be a word for anybody ever again. Which, you know, reasonable. Yeah. She's a thief. Yeah. She a thief. She's a thief of that thing that literally no one is supposed to have. So, chapter 51 is called Sas Nan. This is another Kaladin flashback. It picks up right where we left off after Kaladin killed the opposing Shardbearer. Him and his... Squad mates are being debriefed by Amaram's officers, essentially. Um, as I said in earlier, uh, Amaram is talking to his storm warden and saying, Why would Thydakar risk this? But who else would it be? The ghost bloods grow more bold. We need to find out who he was. Do we know anything about him? Referring to the storm, uh, the shard bearer. So it's a bit of a mystery about why this battle went down the way it did. We'll get to it. So Amaram interrogates Kaladin about the details of the battle. He tries to find Kaladin's ulterior motive for taking on the Shardbearer on his own and seems frustrated that Kaladin doesn't seem to have any ulterior motives. He also doesn't remember uh, Kaladin's sob story backstory. 
which makes Kaladin mad. When Kaladin insists that he wants to give the shards to his uh, squad mate Korob, uh, Amaram's men close all the doors and windows and then assassinate all of Kaladin's squad mates. Just some casual massacre, it's fine. Friendly fire. So this is, I think, the actual, like, inflection point on Kaladin's character. Like, this is when he truly becomes Kaladin Stormstressed. Because he was trying to do the good thing, and uh, his good thing failed. It actively was the worst possible thing. So Amaram is essentially uh, taking control of the narrative and taking the shards for himself. Uh, Kaladin says, it's not about Alethkar, it's about you. You're supposed to be better than the others. Amaram looked guilty suddenly, as if he knew what Kaladin had said was true. So there's just like little bits here to imply that Amaram has some kind of code that he sees himself as one of the good ones which we sort of need, or else it doesn't make sense that instead of killing Kaladin, he brands him as a slave instead and lets him live. Like, if he was just, like, if he was Rashon, he would just kill him. But we need, like, some little detail to make it not absolute nonsense. I'm just saying if Cal wasn't a protagonist, Cal, leaving somebody alive and branding them as a slave is not a kindness. No. <laughs> But because he's a protagonist, he's going to learn and grow. He's going to learn and grow. But anybody else, it's just an extended life sentence. Like, death sentence. True enough. Good thing we live in the world of stories. Such is the end of part three of The Way of Kings. Uh, Before we finish out, we have a few short interludes. Uh, Interlude 1-7 is Boxil. Uh, Baxil is a member of a team of vandals. Him and his buddy work for someone that he only knows as the Mistress, who doesn't seem to belong to any of the races that he knows. The Mistress is on a mission to vandalize as much historical artwork as possible, so they break into rich people's homes, slash paintings, and smash sculptures. It's honestly pretty tame. <laughs> They're anarchists, I guess. Um, and Baxil casually tells his buddy that he's thinking of seeking out the old magic and ask a boon of the Night Watcher. This is literal. They're not just being country bumpkins. Uh, apparently there is a being that will grant you a wish, but also curse you but not in like a monkey paw, monkey's paw kind of way. She'll literally just give you what you ask for, but then give you like some random curse that she thinks you deserve. Baxel just treats this very casually. And he's like, you know what? I'm not doing anything else with my life. I feel like I should go talk to this cosmic being and get a wish granted. I don't even know what wish, but it sounds fun. Just for funsies. Yeah. So that's that interlude. The next interlude is Garanid. Uh, we get a couple of cute old scientists. Oh, I liked this interlude. Yeah. It was really cool how measuring and then writing down as if to make permanent, that's what made them stay in place. This is a pretty important chapter for sort of like the establishment of some of the rules around Spren. Um, 
Also, this is the first chapter where we get a name drop of what the academics think of the structure of the world as being separated into the spiritual realm, the physical realm, and the cognitive realm. Uh, and she says about the cognitive realm, it's a food there what it sees itself as being. I'll have to read and see if anyone has ever eaten while visiting Shadesmar. That's that place from that chapter. Yeah, so Shadesmar is the cognitive realm. It is where perception is reality. It is not hell. Oh no, it's your perception. That's the worst. <laughs> Essentially. Your brain is playing tricks on you. So, this pair of scientists continue to be real cute. Then, the scientist whose job it is to study spren say that when she measures the spren, they'll... Ch uh, so, the spren usually continuously change size, but as soon as she measures them, they freeze in place and remain in their current state. I thought it was the act of writing it down, because to measure them is one thing, but then to definitively write down as if, like, this is the spren, this, that's when they freeze. So, that sort of implies that there is something about observation versus quantification, but this character being a realistic scientist wonders, like, I wonder if the precision of the tools matters. I wonder if what I write down matters. Like, do I need to have actually measured it? Like, these characters are convincingly scientific. Um, it's nice and refreshing. Yeah. Plus, it's always cool when magic gets scienced. Yeah. Some methods of rationality. Um, essentially, Spren work on quantum mechanics. It's like a dual slit experiment or something they behave in two ways at once by observing them you change them yeah quantum mechanics Woo. uh the food scientist tells the math scientist i'll make you a snack while you do some math they're cute i i like it it, it was a heartwarming chapter so our last chapter is a zeth interlude called death wears white and I can pretty much just summarize this by saying Zeth kills the king of Jacobed. While crying. While crying a lot. And blaming everyone else for letting him kill them. This makes me want to call him Itachi. Hmm. I don't remember Itachi's backstory well enough to comment. Basically, I'm right. He's Itachi. Itachi, Sunsun, Uchiha. <laughs> the way he's acting and the crying and how the blame is being assorted. That makes sense. So yeah, I don't really have a ton to say about this chapter. It's just sort of like, hey, keep in mind, Zeth is on his campaign of chaos. Just casual violence, destroying everything, being too powerful. It's everyone else's fault, not his. And with that, we will be moving into part four of The Way of Kings on the next time that we do this podcast. Uh, I'm glad we were able to get together and talk about it, although Tyler seems like he's lost steam again. I have slept for about three hours of the last 24 hours. You, you had like a second wind in the middle of the podcast. Definitely seemed like you tanked. I mean... I mean, it's basically all my fault, so... Uh, Bjorn and I are also buying a house, and I was awake dealing with that all day. While I was sleeping, luxuriously. 
Yeah. So because of that, there might be some additional delays, more than you've even come to expect from our incredibly punctual release schedule. Yeah. Hey, when you think about it, it's really punctual. We post one episode a month, and sometimes a bonus second episode in the month. Wow, so reliable. You just need to reframe your thinking. No, I never thought about it like that. But Reframe your me- cognitive world existence. Maybe you should join us in the cognitive realm where my perception of our release schedule is reality. Now that my our release schedule is more reasonable, we should have a Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> my perception it. So, in reality, we don't have a Patreon. But if you want to support the podcast, please just leave a review on iTunes or tweet at us on Twitter, at Wheel Reading. The link will be in the description, as always. We love to hear from anyone who's been listening to the podcast. And share with your friends. Yeah, that would be really cool. I love that. Yeah. Like, share, and subscribe! (laughs) Smash that button. Make sure to hit the bell icon, so whenever we upload an episode... Maybe we we should be uploading to YouTube. YouTube has better discovery algorithms than most podcast services. Yeah, I was thinking about that. We could do just the little clips that we have on the Twitter, you know? Oh my god, you're right. Just those little snapshots, and that that would be a good way to garner interest, perhaps. Yeah, it's a possibility. I mean, we could also just throw up the MP3s with a picture on the back. God, I love throwing up. On that note, I'm Jesse. I'm Tyler. And I'm Bion. And thanks for listening. If you've listened this far, dear listener, who listens? They they win a prize. The, the prize is our respect. Bye. Bye.